0: Thank you, Anthony. Those words were very encouraging. I appreciate that. I didn't even write them, and I appreciate you doing that for me. I wasn't going to say anything about this until he brought it up. Uh, the family name of Switzer is actually pronounced Schweitzer up here. Uh, I am part of the family that was part of the Schweitzer family uh, up here that helped settle Flagstaff a long time ago with the Babbitts, and um, uh, it's, it's kind of an, it's interesting to me because it's my family, probably not to you, but I'll tell you it, the story anyway, but my paternal grandfather and his brother, William, my grand, paternal grandfather was Walter, William and Walter, who were brothers and who lived in Flagstaff together for some time, um, they had an argument, a family argument over how to pronounce the name Switzer. And William, here in Flagstaff, believed uh, it was Schweitzer, and my, fa- my, my paternal grandfather believed it was Switzer. And so we are actually part of the same family, but we're still very angry with each other about this. It's just the weirdest thing. So it is Schweitzer Canyon Road, okay? So anyway, um, whatever. Let's start doing the Bible thing, okay? And if you have a Bible, it would be really good for you to have it out, And just turn to John chapter 12. We'll be there the whole time until the very end when we go to Mark uh, chapter 8. But it's good to have your Bible out, whether it's a physical Bible or it's uh, on your phone, either one. As I'm speaking about these things, it's really good to have the text right in front of you so that you can see that what we're t- what we're talking about and that what I am talking about is actually in the text I think that's important. You know we've been working our way through John those of you who have been coming the gospel of John. We are getting very close to taking a little break from John though. This summer we're going to start on June 6th. We're going to do 8 weeks in the book of Nehemiah which I love. I love doing the Old Testament. Uh, one of the, I, I have an affinity for the Old Testament in general, but one of the reasons I love the Old Testament is uh, as I grew to love the Old Testament, it helped bring the New Testament writings so much more to life, to understand so much of the background of what's going on in the writings of Paul and especially even in the writings of the Gospels. And we see, we have seen in the Gospel of John as we've gone through it, the shadows of both the Mosaic law and the story of the Exodus in what John is writing and in what Jesus is also teaching. And, and to know those things and to engage with those things brings the New Testament even more to life, which I think is a, a really good thing. Is this because I don't have that little... Maybe pull it out a little bit? It, it just won't do it. So... All right, I'll try that. All right. So, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what's in our immediate rear view window in the Gospel of John. Not everything, just what we've looked at so far in chapter 12. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And I don't know how it was explained here, but the way we uh, have explained it is that um, this perfume, which was worth about a year's wages, was, would be the equivalent maybe of, of our 401k our retirement funds. That's how people in their day would assemble their retirement funds, their, their funds for a, a rainy day. So it was very expensive, this perfume that she poured out uh, for Jesus and anointed him with. And of course, Judas objects to her doing this and we get an editorial comment from John about why he objects because apparently you can't steal what's been poured out and he was very upset really about the money they could have gained that he could have skimmed off the top. So I'm going to do my best Dwight Schrute imitation here, question, will we also pour ourselves out and sell ourselves out in order to anoint Jesus in our lives. That's a striking example of pouring yourself out, of sacrificing everything in order to anoint Jesus in a life, what Mary did. A little tougher for us to do in our context, but it's a legitimate question that we should ask in the text. Here's the second thing we saw. We saw that the plot To kill Lazarus gets developed by the professional religious people. I call them the perps, P R P S, the professional religious people. Uh, These perps will do anything to stop this movement of Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And now, because Jesus has raised Lazarus, they also want to kill Lazarus. They'll do anything. Uh, Again, I think that also is a beautiful picture of the incremental nature of sin. You start with with one little sin. Uh, Think um, Walter White from Breaking... Can we talk about Breaking Bad in church? Is that all right? Okay. Think Walter White from Breaking Bad. He starts with this small, seemingly small, justifiable sin. And by season three... I don't know anything about this series, but by season three... He now murders somebody. It's just the incremental nature of how sin goes. And then finally last week, the triumphal entry, a week before uh, their Easter, and, and I would argue that it is in the triumphal entry that donkeys secure their rightful place in Scripture. We have donkeys in the Old Testament, but now we have one in the New Testament, which is exciting. And during this triumphal entry, Jesus' popularity soars, and He's winning the day but within just a few days, this is how fickle people are, especially religious people. Within just a few days, he will be unjustly tried and executed on the cross. And the perps. The problem with the perps is they already had a conviction; they just needed a trial. They were looking for a trial. They needed a trial in order to legitimize their conviction of Jesus. And so now we look at what we have today—just seven verses—but it's God's word, so it is absolutely loaded. Look at that first verse, verse twenty. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Uh, we need to understand the word Greeks there. Th- these are not people from Greece. This is an articulation or vernacular that they used at the time to describe non-Jewish people. Another word we would use would be Gentiles. They were just not Jews. That's it. And and so these were non-Jews who were coming to Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Passover. There are three what we call pilgrimage festivals or feasts in Scripture. I'm guessing Anthony's already reviewed this, but it would be Passover, Pentecost, and then uh, the, the festival that we spent a lot of time looking at in John chapter 7 and 8, that would be the Feast of Booths or the Festival of the Tabernacles. Those are pilgrimage festivals. They had other festivals in Jerusalem during the year, uh, religious festivals as well. Um, but the pilgrimage festivals, those three uh, people were expected to come from Anywhere that they lived, even if it meant walking for a month to get to the, to the pilgrimage festival, and Jerusalem would swell in size for these, for these festivals. And so this one is Passover, probably the most important one of the year. It's in the spring. And, and the Greeks likely, these Greek people, these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, likely came from an area called the Decapolis. Now, if you're in Arcadia, which is my home church, you know that uh, the... There's one thing that I love almost as much as the Bible and that's Bible maps. I love that part of the Bible, you know, in your study Bibles. So here I'll show you, can we put up the map of uh, what we're talking about here? I think it helps to give us some understanding of what's going on. So, oh man, what happened to my, there it is, all right, cool. So here's, here's Jerusalem, this is where they are, down here, right behind the drums, okay? So the Decapolis is over here, it's east of the Jordan River It's south of the uh, Sea of Galilee and it's north of the Dead Sea. This whole area over here is known as the Decapolis. And the reason it's called that is because if you count all these little towns uh, east of south and north in this area. There's 10 of them. So deca, 10, polis meaning cities. And so these Greeks likely came from that area. There were more Gentiles than there were Jews in that area, but they were coming uh, to the festival. So the question has to be, why did these non-Jewish people want to come to this Jewish festival? Actually, it was pretty common. Uh, many Gentiles were curious about the Jewish faith and they often inquired and wanted to know more. They were known in the first century as God-fearers. That's what a lot of the Jewish people would call them as God-fearers. And some of them would even convert to Judaism. Now, they were still seen as second-class citizens by the Jews and by the professional religious people. Even though they had converted to Judaism because they were not ethnically Jewish, they were still considered second-class citizens. The Gospel of Jesus, of course, changes all this. You read in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul writes, for in Jesus God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, making the two, Jew and Gentile, or any other group of, groups of people that are at odds, that have antipathy with each other, any other group, making the two become one and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. Now notice that first there has to be reconciliation to Christ before we can be reconciled in Christ to each other. That's an important step not to miss. Okay? At any rate, Jesus is a rabbi for the Jews, though obviously he had different insights about the law of God than the other rabbis did. Of course, he wrote the law of God, so he might have some different insights. But these Gentiles, these Greeks, came to Jesus, and that's good. But they picked Philip to inquire and to approach and to speak to. So look at verses 21 and 22. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I, I, I love the genre of true crime. I read a lot of true crime books. If it weren't for theology books and books on communication theory, I would read nothing but true crime and mafia books. I know, I know more about the mafia than you need to know, okay? I've read uh, so much about it. Uh, And I just think this is interesting. They go to Philip, and then Philip goes to Andrew, and then they go to to Jesus. It's just like the Mafia. There are a lot of buffers in the Mafia. The Don, Don Corleone in The Godfather had a lot of buffers. You couldn't get right to Don Corleone. You had to go through people like this. And so the whole point of that is just to let you know that Solomon was right when he wrote Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun, and even the Mafia uses biblical outlines in order to run their business, okay? It's very important to understand that. But the question remains, why Philip? Why, why would John include this detail? There is no detail in the Bible that doesn't have some significance. We may not know why every time, but we think we do know here. The speculation is that Philip's name is a Greek name, and most of the other disciples had Jewish names. And he was also from an area that wasn't around Jerusalem. And so the non-Jews felt comfortable going to somebody with which they felt they had affinity, with which they felt they had something in common. And you and I understand that, right? We get that. We also are naturally more comfortable with that which we are familiar, with that which we have... uh, commonality with that which we understand we're much more comfortable with if we don't understand something we'd rather stay away from it that which we are like and like we we are more comfortable of course this is one of the beauties and challenges of the church we are a body with different members God calls us from many different places He calls us from many different perspectives and perceptions. Many different personalities and experiences. Many different abilities and talents. Many different voting proclivities. The church is a diverse body and we need to be a diverse body with different functioning members in order to be a body with Jesus, of course, as the head. Yet we forget that. We so easily... Anthony will tell you, I will tell you, when leading a church, it's amazing how often the church forgets that we are supposed to be diversified in our membership. We are supposed to be. We're unified, but we're supposed to be diverse. But human beings, we want homogenization. We want affinity. We don't, we don't want to become uncomfortable and feel awkward and be around people who aren't like us. People who think differently than we do and speak differently than we do. People who vote differently. Maybe they don't dress the way we dress. And maybe they even like the Los Angeles Lakers, which would be a huge problem, outside of Los Angeles County, anyway. And because of that, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm convinced that we, the church, Big C Church, the church at large in America, we are 1 Corinthians 12 ignorant and illiterate. And even if we do know about 1 Corinthians 12, we tend to think that it applies elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 12 is where God tells us that the body has many members, but we are unified, even though we have many different diverse members. And we're unified what? We're unified in, in what? Anybody? Know? Our politics, right? It's, we all vote the same, right? We all like the same candidates. Isn't that where we're unified? No, I'm not feeling it right now. We're, we're unified in our preferences, right? We're unified in, our, in the food we like to eat. You know, we're all vegans, right? No? We're all cannibals? I thought this was flagstaff. We're all cannibals, right? Okay? No? We're all unif- not unified in our preferences. We're unified in our hobbies. Let's go shooting today. Let's go to the gun club after church. That's not working, is it? No. We're unified in Christ. We have different proclivities, but we are unified in Christ. And that supersedes all of these other differences that we have, and that's what makes us a body. An ear doesn't function like an eye, and that's good. An elbow doesn't function like a little toe, and that's good. And Paul points that out for us. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 12 is also the chapter of Scripture where we are told that if one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. That's, that can be hard to do sometimes too, but we need to do it. So the Greeks, the Gentiles come to Jesus and that's good. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus says the hour has come. This hour thing has been a theme throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has said many times, my hour has not yet come. John has written narratively, Jesus' hour has not yet come, but now he says, my hour has come. And what is this hour? It's his trial and his execution. Now I know that... Uh, overarchingly, this includes the resurrection as well, but specifically here, he's saying, no, specifically my hour where I am going to be glorified is the trial and the cross, the execution. And so that's the other thing that's added in this verse to the fact that his hour has come is the fact that he's going to be glorified in his hour. So here's the question. How is Jesus going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified by leading the defeat of the Romans. No, no. He's going to be glorified by preaching the best sermon ever at Passover. No. He'll be glorified by being elected to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. No. He's going to be glorified by having the most likes and reposts on his social media platforms. That's how he'll be glorified. No. There's nothing in this glory for Jesus that comes from or is about Jesus' exaltation or grandeur. Rather, Jesus' glory and the Father's glory next week, which we'll see in verses 27 and 28, His glory comes from humble, other-centered sacrifice. His glory comes from humble, other-centered sacrifice. The glory comes from the cross, the crucifixion. Glory comes in humility. Glory comes in seeking to be small. Glory comes in waiting to be invited rather than just asserting yourself all the time. That's where true glory comes. And that's taught throughout Scripture. And crucifixion is not only physically painful and torturous, it's also the single most humiliating and shameful tool of human dishonor ever invented. Ever in history, Jesus' glory comes from his humiliation. Now, that's thoroughly counterintuitive to how you and I live our lives. It's thoroughly counterintuitive to how culture tells us we should be living. Look out for number one, take care of yourself first. We're supposed to be seeking our happiness, our power, and our status first and foremost. But Jesus shows us a better way. And this better way is not without joy. It's not without happiness. It's not without power, and it's not without status. It's just that the gospel provides those things differently and through a different means. Our power, our status, our joy, our happiness is going to look different and be different. It's going to be real. There's going to be some substance and gravitas to it. It's going to be eternal. But it's given to us through a a lens that's completely different than we would ever consider in the world. But then let's talk just a minute about the first part of this verse. Was it just Philip and Andrew who went to Jesus or did the Greeks follow Philip and Andrew? Who is Jesus speaking to in verses 24 through 26? Well, uh, we're going to find that out. We're not absolutely sure, but... The way Jesus answers in verses 24 through 26 leads most scholars to believe that he's actually speaking to the Greeks, that they followed Philip and Andrew to Jesus. And the reason is because Jesus' answer is constructed in a way that's different than how he generally speaks to Jewish people. I'll discuss that in just a minute when we get there. But again, what we should see here is that Jesus is not shooing away the non-Jews, but rather he's opening the door to them, a door that was previously mostly closed, even if they were interested. Now next week, in verse 32, Jesus claims that his crucifixion, his sacrifice and atonement, will draw all people unto him. But what Jesus means when he says that the cross will draw all people to him is, that, is not that every individual will be saved, but rather it means that all kinds of people will come to him. People of all ethnicities and nationalities and socioeconomic realities and educational levels and on and on and on. All kinds of people will come to him. In other words, this is God's son blowing the door wide open to God and to salvation. So the meat of Jesus' response to this inquiry comes in the last three verses. And listen to his answer because that's where most people push to assert that he's talking to the Greeks. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you're a caffeine drinker, these next three minutes are going to be really important. So you need to focus. So take a sip, all right? When Jesus engages with the Jews and especially the professional religious people, the content of his dialogue mostly addresses how embedded in the Mosaic Law and their own traditions they had become. And that's a problem and it's an obstruction to them getting to God. He's telling them that their interpretation of the law and their pious selfish religious doodads are getting in the way of their relationship with God. That word doodads is actually a scholarly academic term. You have to go to seminary to learn terms like that, okay? Religious doodads. Use that the next time you're out having coffee or a beer, and it'll really impress your friends, okay? Anyway, here Jesus is addressing the problem... Of the law of those who are without the Mosaic law. He's talking to those who don't know anything really about the Mosaic law. Those who have the law of self. Jesus says you guys have a similar but different problem than the Jews. The Jews use the Mosaic law to glorify themselves. You Greeks, however, have your own law that you make up yourself in order to glorify you. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and 2. The exact same thing, only Paul says it more academically. Jesus is using illustrations to say it. And what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 is that we all have the same problem without Jesus in our life. It just manifests itself differently. And we justify it differently. We are all self-seeking sinners in need of a Savior. So with the Greeks, Jesus speaks directly to the selfish heart of the unbeliever. And he says, you have to die to yourself before you can live. He says, if you want a life that bears fruit, you need to invest and serve. You need to plant seeds. And you need to reprioritize your life. And you need to put me at the top of your list and allow everything else to flow from there. And what we see in these... Three verses. And let me tell you something. My style, I rarely do five things from the Seven ways to a better marriage. Eleven ways to better eating and flags. I rarely do that. But it just, this passage here screams for this. There are five application points here. And if you're a note taker, start writing. Because there are five really good application points here. Here's the first one. Look at Jesus' teaching in verse 24. The one who does not live an outward focused life the one who does not die to self remains alone here you go selfishness leads to loneliness selfishness leads to loneliness how's that for counterintuitive but it's true here's the second thing followers of jesus are called to plant seeds if there isn't any planting there's no harvest The tough part is that while we are responsible for the planting, it's God who's responsible for the harvest, for the results. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted the seeds, Apollos watered them, but God made them grow. We also need to understand that a seed cannot produce life. A seed is not plantable until it first dies. To be good planters, we have to be other-oriented. And how do we plant seeds? Well, your context is primarily going to determine the specifics of how you plant seeds, but Scripture does give us some overarching insight. For instance, Scripture tells us that we need to love our neighbor, and our neighbor is anyone that we come in contact with, even our enemies. Scripture tells us not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Scripture tells us to not look just to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can look out for your own interests, but as they relate to others' interests, you need to look out for others' interests as well. Be other-oriented. Scripture calls us to empathy and compassion and patience, all things that are impossible to practice if we always think of ourselves first. Here's the third thing. When Jesus says whoever loves their life will lose it, It means whoever prefers a life that is resistant to gospel transformation will perish apart from God. And that's not a good or desirable thing. At least it shouldn't be a desirable thing. Here's the fourth thing. When Jesus says we must hate our life, we need to understand that this is a hyperbolic statement. It's a rhetorical device. It's a statement of exaggeration for effect. Literally it means that we should find our life apart from God and apart from Jesus unacceptable. Doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't enjoy our life here on earth. Not at all. We should. We should glory in God's creation. We should revel in what He's given us. But it does mean that this life here without Jesus is second best and we shouldn't want second best. And finally, number five, verse 26 tells us That we all have a cross to bear, but there is honor in bearing that cross. I want to unpack this just a little bit further for a minute by looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. If you want to turn there, it'll also be up on the screen. So, Mark chapter 8, we're going to end with this, starting in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he didn't use a parable, he didn't use an illustration, he didn't use a metaphor. He said this plainly. He wanted to make sure they understood this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, the Acts Peter thinking back on rebuking Jesus in the Gospels, that must have been kind of a tough time for him to think about that. But he takes Jesus aside, began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to Jesus with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The thing I love about that statement, which this is a more clarifying way of what Jesus is saying in John Chapter 12, what we just looked at Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There is a universality to that statement and also a uniqueness to that statement for each of us. The universal part of that statement is that you and I must understand that we need to start denying ourselves, we need to die to ourselves. Jesus died on the cross. In that sense, he is an exemplar of that fact. We need to learn how to die to ourselves. Doesn't mean, again, we don't have pleasure in this world. Doesn't mean we don't have happiness. Doesn't mean that there isn't fun. But we need to be aware of others. We need to be aware of God. We need to start putting ourselves second. That's the universal claim. But then pick up your cross is the unique part of that saying. My cross is not your cross. Your cross is not my cross. All of us are going to have different crosses to bear because we're members of a body. We're members of of this family of God. It's the same idea of the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God gives us that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the same idea how we come together as members uh, of, of the body with this diversity, but we also have a diversity of crosses that we are carrying. And the seasons of our life, is gonna, those seasons are going to dictate what crosses we carry at certain times in our life. I'm 62 years old. I just became a grandfather. I have different crosses to bear right now than I used to bear when I was in my 20s. And whatever my crosses are, there may be three or four of you in this room now who have similar or the same crosses to bear. But the vast majority of you have way different crosses to bear. And I need to take an interest in your crosses and need to understand those just like you need to take an interest in my crosses and understand those. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. So there's a unique part of this statement too, the cross that we bear. And then he says we all need to follow Jesus. So ultimately what Jesus is getting at is you can't die to yourself and you can't bear your cross until you first come to me. And that's the gospel. You and I fall so short. No matter what law we follow, whether it's a Mosaic law, Ten Commandments law, and think we're following that even though we can't, Or it's our own self-governing law that we've set up because we think we can manage that. But every time we fall short, we just lower the law. We're good at that. We're not able to do it. We fall short. Jesus didn't fall short. And, And in fact, He loves us so much that He went to the cross in order to impute all of that righteousness to us. We just need to come to Him. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And I pray that that would be what every heart in this room would desire to do. Let's pray together and we'll move into our time of reflection. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth and we thank, you for, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son to give up everything that he had in order to serve us and to make us whole with you, to reconcile us to you. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. God, give us the courage now to live out the gospel in our lives. We do it for you. We do it for others. And ultimately, it really is for us as well. So thank you for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.